0: Good afternoon, and Ottawa's expecting Moderna to make
1: good on a previously promised batch of 855,000 doses that were expected last week but have yet to arrive here. Those, along with a little more than a million from Pfizer, representing all of what Canada is expected to receive this week. The public health agency not expecting any from AstraZeneca this week. Meanwhile, a clear indication just when the first doses of the Johnson & Johnson product will be delivered. That's the latest as the number of new cases uh, continues to surge in Ontario. 4,401 new ones, 1,282 in Toronto, 772 in Peel Region, 564 in York Region. Here are some more numbers, 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-744-740. We want you to be part of the conversation and to weigh in, and we will begin, as Libby does every Monday, with the Zoomer Squad. Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor, Zoomer Magazine, Bill Van Gorder, Interim Chief Policy Officer of CARP, and David Kravitz, Vice President, Zoomer Media, Chief Membership Officer of CARP. Gentlemen, good afternoon. Hi there, Bob. Hi, Bob. And uh, Peter, let's begin with you. What do you uh, make of the latest situation with uh, the numbers in terms of where we're at versus uh, what's happening with the vaccine deliveries?
2: Yeah, well, it's um, this third wave seems to be a whole new uh, pandemic on its own. You know, we don't uh we thought we understood that it would it affected older people to a great extent, and so we got all the vaccines into the old age homes and the nursing homes and the retirement homes and Now it seems like it's younger people who are being affected, and it's creating a a huge conundrum among public health officials of of how to roll out the vaccine. Do we go by age still or do we start um hitting frontline workers? What about people? Have underlying conditions. There's a lot of people clamoring for this vaccine. A lot of groups clamoring for it, and um, the province certainly has its work cut out for them figuring out who should get it when. And with all this is is done with with very limited supplies in the vaccine, so it, it's it's a difficult situation to be sure about.
1: Bill Van Gorder.
2: Yeah, it, it is a huge concern to our
3: CARP uh, members, and it you know the basis of of the whole Bill Bill w-
1: Bill what we're going to yes. try to do we're going to get David's comment here we're going to try uh, try to reach out to you again as uh, the line is not the best so David if you can weigh in while we reconnect with uh, with Bill and uh, hope the the string between here and there is a a little better <laughs> a little better this time around so D- David if if you could
4: well I drew the short straw today Bob I'm going to voice the unpopular opinion here that this thing is much more confused and contradictory than it needs to be because they keep changing the criteria. Are we trying to prevent deaths? Are we trying to prevent infections? Are we trying to prevent The hospital system from being overwhelmed. I did did some numbers. I did some homework this morning. I want you to indulge me just for one minute if you can. The last time we had a big surge was January. The first 15 days in January, we added 43,000 new cases during that period. I'm talking Ontario-wide. We were seeing daily fatality numbers. There was a 61 and 89. 37, 51, 41, during those 15 days, 43,000 new cases, 708 deaths for a 1.6% rate of deaths to cases. First 12 days of April, the Ontario website only goes up to April 12th, 39,000 new cases, uh, roughly the same, a little bit less, but we're a day or two short. So another big peak, but the deaths, the total deaths during that period, 178 deaths, for a death rate of four-tenths of 1% of all new cases. Now, that makes sense at one level if it's younger people, but it all says, what are we trying to do here? All I hear from the public health, one minute they're worrying about death, then they're worried about number of beds in ICUs. now they're worrying about infections altogether. When would we take these kinds of measures for any disease that had a fatality rate of four-tenths of 1%? But you can't get any consistency out of any of them as to what they're worth. So they wind up worrying about everything and satisfying nothing. And I think that's the conundrum we're in, frankly.
1: Bill Van Gorder, we've reconnected with you. Uh, if if we can kind of springboard off what David is saying there with some of those numbers, hopefully you were, you were listening to all the work he put into uh, giving us a, a, a picture of those two points in time of the pandemic. Do you feel then the focus should be on cutting down on the infections first? Because we can't do everything we'd like to, but we can't do it all at the same time. Uh,
3: no, uh, no, we can't. And, you know, the unfortunate thing and what's really worrying uh, uh, older adults right across the province is that uh, we're not getting the vaccines we need. We're less than a third of the percentage of people who have been uh, vaccinated in the United States. And we always like to think that our health system is uh, better. We're getting mixed uh, information, as David says. It's, it's uh, very... Uh, very confusing and, uh, and 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 seniors are feeling that uh, uh, that they're being forgotten uh, that now that the 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 pressure is on to use the vaccines for for other parts of the population, they're not arguing with that. They, they understand it, uh, but they're afraid that uh, their needs... Re- remember that almost 50% of those over 70 have at least one risk factor in addition to their age. So n- nothing has changed in the fact that uh, our older re- uh, residents of Ontario are still more at risk than much of the other rest of the population.
1: Now, I think in your opening remarks, uh, Peter, you alluded to this uh, study by the Canadian Medical Association Journal finding three quarters of the 61,000 Canadians studied had at least one condition increasing the risk of severe illness from COVID. And CMAJ saying while age and risk factors may have been the approach in the first wave, the one we're in now shows the most vulnerable are those in economically marginalized neighborhoods.
2: Yeah, and, and, and that's uh that study's probably behind what um you know, Ontario's recent move of uh you know, highlighting certain postal codes that have um younger demographic but higher infection rates. And 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 but I what I'm not sure is whether that strategy has made it to the um you know, the science table. Like we there's so much noise out there, Bob, about um what we should do next? You know, we have these sort of uh, these doctors who become, you know, you know, sort of our, our moral guidance on this issue, and and they're all saying different things, and it, and it's a very very difficult task to to for for you know the the casual observer to try to understand um, what's going on, and and let alone the government to try to plan with all these different voices coming in, and 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 muddying the issue.
1: 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. And uh, we don't mind you listening to what David, Bill, and Peter have to say, but what do you have to say? Give us a call on one of those lines here as we continue with the Zoomer squad on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back, Bob Comsick sitting in for for Libby's Nimer. Uh, David, the, the same researchers with the Canadian Medical Association Journal agreeing with NACI, which. As we know, the acronym National Advisory Committee of Immunization, uh, they agree the researchers do to delay the time between doses in most cases, so as many Canadians as possible can get get that shot and uh, and we can worry about uh, you know tackling the the infection numbers.
4: Well, I think one has to accept that. I don't like that. Um, obviously, the manufacturer felt that uh, you needed to get that second shot quicker. To be fair, that was in the absence of, of widespread actual usage. Um, you know, you could say that if I can get this into 100 arms once, that's better than getting it into 50 arms twice. Um, and the, But it all goes back to, Peter touched on this, if you don't have any supply or enough supply or supply is inadequate and suddenly Moderna isn't delivering last week, oops, sorry, we'll deliver it this week then you're forced into these uh, rationing moves and that's where the confusion about who's on you know who's the priority that's where it comes in it wouldn't be necessary to have these trade-offs if you had enough supply and that's the main reason i'm highlighting the confusion about the data are we trying to save lives In, in a rational world it seems to me you'd say number one save lives. I can't stop all the infections. I haven't gotten enough vaccines. Can't roll it out quickly enough. Save the lives. We seem to be in a very low uh, rate or, rate of death, thank goodness, compared to the peak in January. Does that mean it's working? Should we stick with that? If we start diverting into this group needs it and this group needs it, what about these people over yonder? It's not that those groups aren't deserving. It's we don't have enough supply and they won't cut through the noise, it seems, and just state clearly what their priorities are. Uh, it's, you know, stop all infections. We're worried about this. We're worried about this. We're worried about that. We haven't got enough vaccines to begin with.
1: And as far Bill, it's, you know, it's easy to say, get us the vaccine. And as we look at our, our watches or our, or our phones and check on the time and tap our toes and uh, kind of rub our forehead and look down the road and wonder when the, the bus is coming, unfortunately, It's just not there at certain times. There are lulls for whatever reason with production or deliveries. I mean, easy to say, where's the supply? And, you know, the government, the governments, and especially Ottawa, in terms of doling it out, can only do what it can do with what it has. So it's easy to say, Ottawa, give it to us. If But if it's not there, it's it's not their fault. Where is it?
3: Oh, well, yes, ultimately it is their their fault. They they fumbled the ordering system right from the uh, beginning. Remember that uh, they, the, uh the the government thought that we wouldn't have vaccines available uh, to us until uh, into two, 2021. So that's when they made all these contracts uh, for uh, the other countries that contracted to get them earlier. So we're ahead in line. It was, fum- it was fumbled right from the beginning, and now we're paying the we're paying the price of that of that original fumble. The province did not do a good job rolling them out uh, to begin with. We're confusing in-, in the way, slowness in getting them out. Still very confused, and this has created uh, even uh, more co- more confusion uh, now. So uh, you know, in some ways, uh, it appears the government is using the uh The excuse of uh, not not enough uh, not enough vaccines available and uh, not enough time to plan uh to uh, to avoid admitting uh, that uh, the system was was uh, in crisis right from the from the start and they should have been planning months ago so we wouldn't have reached this point uh, now now that we've reached uh this point that there there aren't enough uh, uh, vaccines uh, apparently for what we want to uh, what they want to do now they're trying to uh, uh, to alter the way it's being it's being used for the maximum benefit but even the researchers can't uh, agree on on uh, that uh, uh, remember that the Nazi has said right from the beginning and they haven't changed this that the uh, second dose should be offered as soon as possible after the eligible populations have had their their first doses with the highest uh, risk uh, of of illness uh, and and disease. And that's still uh, the older adults, many of whom don't have their first uh, uh, dose yet. And that's what we want to make sure. You know, there are still people in long-term care homes who haven't had their first dose.
1: Now, a lot of people, including the three of you and many other guests that uh, Libya has had on Fight Back for for months now, maybe even as right at the beginning of the of the pandemic, I'm, I'm sure it came up and we just touched it on it again. Peter, uh, I should say, Bill, in terms of blaming Ottawa and then subsequently the other governments, the other levels of governments with the the rollout once they they got their, uh, their supplies, but Peter, we are where we are. Never mind beating this government up again and and trying to, you know, give it some more bruises over this. It is what it is. We are where we're at. So now I guess it's a case of having to be fluid. And it is a shell game, moving things around on the on the desktop here. But uh, what do we do? How do we approach uh, the next step then? While we're awaiting more vaccines.
2: Yeah, I, you know, I, pe- people are getting anxious. You know, and, and when people get anxious, it, this this kind of, uh, you know, this kind of blame uh, sort of bubbles to the top. But um, I, I must say, like, I, as much as I don't blame the federal government handling, uh, the, you know, they, their hands were somewhat tied. But but in the, um, in the in the Liberal convention, Trudeau was sort of taking credit for the uh for the vaccine rollout and i certainly don't think he should take credit for it because um as we see here in ontario it's a bit of a mess you know so um while i don't blame the federal government i am sort of blaming them for trying to take credit for it i understand it was a convention and everything but honestly like this this is it's it's approaching fiasco levels now and certainly there's no credit to be gained from it and uh I I, I just thought it was um, a little bit cynical of of the government to do that, or the the liberals to do that this weekend.
1: Okay, so uh, let's—and I guess it was uh, touched upon uh, in terms of— the hotspots in certain neighborhoods concern the province is giving priority access to COVID vaccines to ones that are less affected by the pandemic, meaning that other neighborhoods with more serious problems are not designated as such. Now, provincial data indicating five of the postal codes designated COVID hotspots have stats showing lower hospitalization and death rates than other areas for them are in the GTA. M5V in Toronto, a couple in Markham, L6C as in Charlie, L6E as in Edward, and then one in Richmond Hill, L4B as in Bob. Now, the worry is giving such a a designation, David, to so many that the province risks diverting vaccines from those areas and people who need them the most.
4: I think it's a valid concern, but I think the other problem, you know, just I think last week or the week before we were talking about the percentage of seniors that hadn't been vaccinated yet and the hesitancy. There was a topic we had about language barriers, you know, in certain areas. And and I can understand from the point of view of the province, uh, why should I withhold the vaccine that I have in my hot little hands from an area if I haven't been able to give it to a senior? So uh, if if I've got unused vaccines uh, that I need to dispense, uh, I'm going to keep flexible day to day. I think it doesn't sound illogical to me, uh, but it it goes back to have you in, clearly enunciated your priorities. And I go back again: Are you trying to prevent deaths, or are you trying to prevent infection? It's two very different strategies, and it may cause you to dissipate your scarce resources on something you can't stop anyway.
1: Bill,
3: yeah, David's uh, Dave, David's right. Uh, it is it is choice all the all the time. What CARP has been uh, asking for and and actually demanding is that these choices be made by the medical people, the researchers. The people who at least are, are closest to understanding the dichotomies that, that Dave has outlined and that they not be political decisions. Too often, uh, the, the final decisions look like they're being made politically to service uh, uh, different uh, di- different groups, different areas of the province, rather than based on sound uh, medical uh, recommendations.
1: Peter, you always hear from from Doug Ford whenever he's asked about what to do next, uh, depending on the day and depending on what the headline or two uh, are, and he'll always say, I listen to what my chief medical officer of health has to tell me. That's not to say he solely listens to David Williams, but I guess the message he's trying to get out there is, hey, I'm not deciding this on my own. It's not just myself and, and those around my cabinet table. We kick around and decide based on what we are told. And obviously, uh, it isn't just David Williams they listen to. They've got the Ontario uh, Science Advisory uh, table as well, basically their their advising team. So, And I'm sure Sure that uh, everybody around that particular table isn't always on the same page, so that can kind of lead to some uh, debate amongst them before the government has to decide. But they're responding to what the experts are telling them. But I'm sure not all experts are singing off the same song sheet well, all the yeah, time.
2: And, and Bob, we can we can see that clearly when, when we watch the news and we we see all these different doctors uh, speaking and. You know, um, Doctor Bogatch will say one thing, and Doctor Warner will say another thing, and then, you know, one of these other doctors, um, Stahl, will say another thing, and 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 it's just it, it, it's sort of competing interests, and then and then um, the the Toronto um, Deville will will say another thing, and and it, it's just all these uh, competing voices. Um, they, they all have valid points and, and they're all backed up because they're all doctors. They're all obviously backed up by science, but, but it's this, this noise this competing voices. And and as you say, it's, it, it's extremely difficult to, to have one coherent, um, you know, strategy when, when you, when you're undermined every second of every day on every newscast.
1: Okay. So we've got the, uh, elective surgery, uh, delays, uh, taking effect as of today at uh, all hospitals in ontario say for the north for now so let's get around go around the table before we uh, close here and we'll get into this aspect more so into the second half of the show but just to end it with you three here right now bill van gorder your thoughts on uh what the hospitals are having to do as of today
3: well, the first you know the, the first uh, thought and, and the thing that comes to mind for uh, most of the the people that Carp talks to is uh, that we toss around the term elective surgeries uh, these days as if there's something uh, un, unimportant and, uh, and not really uh, necessary. And you know, elective surgeries uh, include hernia surgeries, uh, kidney stones, uh, appendix. Uh, Operations, hip uh, replacements, even mastectomies, and in in some areas, can be considered uh, elective because they take a little bit of time and planning, and and don't have to be done maybe urgently. But the people who are suffering from from what the surgeries are intended to correct are uh, not having a quality of life that they want to have. They're in they're in pain. They have. Uh, all kinds of issues we shouldn't i we understand having to delay elective surgeries but let's not treat them as if they're unimportant and that's what seems to happen when these announcements are made
5: peter
2: um yeah well i, I guess desperate times call for desperate measures and um you know if freeing up uh, icu space up north or you know transferring patients up north or transferring staff down uh, into Toronto or the hot zones to to staff the ICU units. Um, it, it, it's just a it's it's a desperate measure in desperate times, and and uh, it, if it allows us to offer more ICU beds, then I'm all for it. I I, I don't see a downside.
1: David, closing w- thoughts from you.
4: I well again, nobody is willing to declare what the baseline is. So if there was nobody in an ICU. In the entire province, not one single person, how many beds are there? Nobody knows. I've never heard that number. Okay, how many beds now are occupied by COVID cases, and how severe are they, and how does that cross-reference with the very low number of deaths? It shocked me as a naive, ignorant outsider that 600 patients in ICU units in the entire province is enough to shut down the system. So how many did we have before? And is that something we've got to add to our wish list that the government should pay more attention to going forward? Nobody ever seems to come out and tell you the actual numbers. They just tell you anecdotally that it's very, I accept that it's serious. I absolutely don't deny that these facilities are overwhelmed. If they say they are, I'm not accusing anybody of misleading. But I'd like to know what the numbers are. And I can't get a clear statement of that, it seems, from uh, any quarter.
1: David Kravitz. Vice President, Zoomer Media, Chief Membership Officer of CARP, Bill Van Gorder, Interim Chief Policy Officer of CARP, and Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine. They make up, they are the Zoomer Squad Heard every Monday here with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio's Fightback. Peter, David, Bill, thank you very much for your thoughts and your time again.
4: Thanks so much,
3: Bob. Appreciate everybody.
1: Okay. Breast, breast screening, elective surgery delays, which we just touched on there amid this current wave. We'll get into those with several guests, beginning with the health critic for the official opposition in Ontario, Bob
0: Comsick sitting in for Libby's Nimer. You are listening to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Oh, no. Fight back with Libby's Nimer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Bob Comsic. Welcome back. On the day, Ontario hospitals, except for those
1: in the northern part of the province for now, are starting to ramp down on elective non-emergency surgeries in an effort to ease the pressure on intensive care units. The province is reporting 1,646 are in hospital because of COVID-19, 619 in ICUs, 408 are on ventilators. What other choice is there? 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-740-4740 we'd like to hear what you think about what you just heard. Let's now go to the health critic for the official opposition in Ontario, Afran Jelena. Ms. Jelena, thank you for joining us. And what other choice is there? I asked the listeners, I'm asking you the same.
6: Well, um, uh, thank you for having me on. The first thing I would say is that Ontario should have never been into this position. Uh, We knew how to prevent this from happening, and the Premier and his government refused to act. The situation we are in right now is is catastrophic. It is really bad. We already have a quarter of a million procedures, surgeries, that did not get done because of the first and second lockdown, um, what will that mean now that we will add to this list? Uh, nothing good um, now that we are in it. You have to look at every possible action, every possible sources of help have to be tapped into uh, so that we can stabilize our ICU, our hospital admission, our people on ventilators, and keep people, more people from getting sick, as well as uh, reopen our hospital to uh, non-emergency surgery.
1: Before asking what the NDP would do if New Democrats were the ones sitting on the other side of the House, in terms of the Ford PC's What did they do, didn't do, that's led us to where we are here now?
6: The first thing they didn't do is that they did not listen to science. I mean, it is there on YouTube for everybody to see when uh, uh, Dr. Brown did the projection as to what will happen in April if we don't change course. What his predictions was is exactly what is happening now. What his recommendations were were things like making workplace safer because we could see that More and more of the outbreaks are coming from people who have no choice but to go to work, cannot work from home. How do you protect them? first thing is you give them sick days so that when they are sick, they don't have to think about, can I pay the rent and feed my kids? Or do I go to work and risk infecting others? It also makes it easier for them to agree to be tested, because once you're tested, you cannot come to work. You don't come to work. You don't get paid. That was all there. It is supported by hospital administrator, public health expert, uh, chamber of commerce. Everybody's telling the government to do this. They continue to re- to refuse. Same thing in our in our schools. Lots of our older schools have small classrooms that cannot allow for distancing between the kids. You have to make smaller cohorts of kids. They've always refused. There are a number of steps that they could have taken to keep the third wave from hitting us as hard as it is, and they did not. And here we are with. Uh, um, adding to the quarter of a million Ontarians waiting for surgery.
1: I take it then, the, I think I know the answer to this one, if the NDP were the one sitting on the other side and the government, you would be doing, you would say you would be doing or would have done what they haven't done?
6: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. We know that the biggest thing we can do to uh, curb the is uh, looking at where is it spread It is spread in workplaces right now where people haven't got a choice but to go to work. How do you keep the spread to go from workplaces to community to everybody else? Um, All the experts say the same thing. Paid sick days. Help them make the right decision to stay home.
1: You mentioned the paid sick days. Your leader, Andrew Horvath, has continually been calling for this. Um, And you've got the Ford government with their response saying... It does not wish to duplicate what Ottawa is doing, so and we're at a standstill here.
6: Well, you don't have to du- duplicate what the federal is doing. There is nothing wrong in uh, in having a program, an Ontario program, uh, that fills in the gap that the federal program does not uh, fill. A lot of people do not qualify for the uh, for the federal program. You more or less. I don't know if your listeners are aware of what you need to qualify for employment insurance. If you need, if you meet all of those criteria, there's a chance that you will be able to qualify for the federal program. But if you don't like a lot of, um, low-pay workers don't, um, then then you are out of luck and they are the one who have to go to work every day. They are the one who come home to a crowded household time. and they are the one who get sick. And right now, they are the one of the 402 on ventilator and the 619 in the ICU, if you go look at who those people are, they are racialized people of colors, oftentimes, who are precarious jobs, who didn't have a choice but to go to work, and they got sick, and they got their family sick.
1: 416 toll-free 1-866-744-740 you quite possibly listening out there may be ones who go into such workplaces that we're touching on right here, that Fran Elena, health critic for the Ontario NDP, is touching on, or maybe have a family member know of someone. Give us a call. uh, Share your thoughts on on this uh, situation. Now, uh, Ms. Yelena you have the government that is going to be sending, uh, mobilizing more of these mobile units to be going out uh, to the workplaces. Are you saying too little, too late?
6: Uh, it's a good thing that those mobile uh, 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 vaccination clinics are going, but why didn't we plan from them back, you know, like, why did the government wait till... December 12th to put their planning committee together when we received our first vaccine on the 19th. Why weren't we planning this back in June, July when we knew that the vaccine was the light at the end of the tunnel? None of this. He makes announcements. The premier makes announcements all the time, but none of this has been arranged, it's not ready to go. There may be one or two mobile clinic, but we need a whole lot more of them. In Windsor, in Essex, in Hamilton, in Ottawa, none of them exist. In my neck of the woods, in Northern Ontario, they've announced uh, two pharmacies in my writing. They announced them like the week before Easter... None of them have received a single shot of vaccine yet. The announcement get made, and then the planning starts, and then some weeks later, we actually get good things done. That's like uh, a little bit late.
1: Now... All Ontario hospitals, except the ones up in the northern part of the province, the area that uh, part of the area that, of course, you represent, are going to be starting to ramp down on elective surgeries as of today. But for now, not the north. Do you suspect, uh, given the numbers, that pretty soon it will include the north? What are you hearing?
6: Right now, we know that in some hospital, if you look around Scarborough, Brampton, North York, if some hospital around Toronto, their ICUs are full. They don't have any more ventilator. They're at capacity. So right now, they will start to move. They have already started to move people out of area. Think about it. Your son is really, really sick. He's 22 years old. He's sick with COVID. He is on a ventilator. You don't know if he's going to make it or not. And he's being shipped out to Kingston when you live in Brampton and you don't have a car. You know how hard that is for family? This is what it looks like right now in our Ontario hospital. For lots of hospital in the GTA, this transferring of patient has already been done. It was done with consent, sometimes Family will tell me that they did not consent. They felt like they didn't have choice. Now they won't need consent because they put that directive. They will just ship you wherever there is an empty bed, no matter what that means for your family. To get better, you often need your family around you. And it is pretty stressful for a family member that has a pay, uh, a loved one in the ICU on a ventilator with getting around telling them, well, he has 5% chance of making it. Uh, today, it's down to 3% chance of making it. And you can't be with them because they are hundreds of miles away.
1: Ontario opposition health critic Franj Jelena. Thank you very much for your time today.
6: Oh, you're welcome, Bob. Thank you.
1: All right. Before we go to our next guest, let's go to Kathy in Toronto. Good afternoon, Kathy. You are on Zuma Radio's Fight Back. Share your story, please. Okay. All right. It looks like uh, we have lost Kathy there. So hopefully if you can give us a shout back or someone else, if you'd care to weigh in 416 or toll free 1-866-744-740. And hundreds of thousands, fewer women were screened for breast cancer in Ontario last year. That has some fearing that this is going to lead to a crisis of more serious later stage breast cancers after the pandemic. Among those expressing concern, Dr. Jean Seeley, president of the Canadian Society of Breast Imaging, and Dr. Seeley joins us now. Good afternoon.
7: Good afternoon.
1: Well, doctor, how did we get here?
7: Well, it's, um, you know, we've learned a lot in the last uh, year since COVID hit. And when we first started uh, with the pandemic, we we didn't uh, know all the safe guidelines to use. So we stopped screening uh, in Ontario and across Canada as well as internationally for three months. And that led to marked decrease in uh, the number of women who were coming in for screening um, and We started again in June, um, but we've had some uh, difficulties with um, women knowing that it was safe to come in for their screening, Uh, and that has led to hundreds of thousands of women in Ontario. We know that 400,000 fewer women were um, screened in the Ontario Breast Screening Program, but we also know that there's probably another 30%. Uh, of that number who have not been screened outside of the screening program because they're either in the 40 to 50 age group or they're breast cancer survivors. So there are many, many women who haven't been screened for breast cancer.
1: What needs to be done then?
7: Well, I think people need to know that it is very important to get screened for their breast cancer. The reason that we screen is to have early diagnosis of breast cancer before um, um, uh, a cancer can be felt with a clinical symptom. Uh, and if we pick it up at an early stage, we know that we have an excellent chance of surviving breast cancer, so less likely to have a mastectomy uh, or a chemotherapy, and, and about a 40 to 44% chance of doing, of uh, surviving breast cancer, much better than if you wait for it to become felt with a symptom. So um, we really need to reassure um, women, even in this third wave of the pandemic, that the safe precautions are being used across the province and across Canada uh, to do this so that we do not cause any um, infection of COVID. It's done very safely with um, proper guidelines in place. And it is really important to continue even during COVID because um, cancer doesn't stop during COVID. We have to do what we normally do, which is pick it up at an early stage.
1: And what about what the hospitals in Ontario Save the North are starting to do as of today in order, uh, in other words, ramping down on elective non-emergency surgeries? Now, it would not affect any that are life-threatening, but still, how does this potentially impact uh, some of the women we've just been talking about?
7: Yeah, so, so we have had to really ramp down on the, some of the surgeries because our ICU capacities are being exceeded, our hospital capacities are being exceeded, doing the screening will not uh, have an impact on those um, hospitalizations. Uh, so we've learned so much in the last year. As I said, we now have these safe precautions, and we've not been given any direction that we should stop screening. So uh, I would uh, suggest that for medical reasons, we uh, patients should continue with their screening appointment unless we're otherwise directed by public health.
1: And is it just, there's just so much, as people have said, noise out there, it's hard to know what to do. So should uh, a woman possibly just reach out to her doctor and say, look, uh, I, I can't tell up from down right now, what should I be doing? Aren't women doing this maybe enough?
7: Well, there. I think it's very important to check to see if there's any cancellations, um, and every hospital is managing this, and every clinic is managing this differently. I can tell you, at our hospital, we are continuing as we are, you know, even before this third wave hit, and we are um, c- confirming appointments with patients. Um It's important that people check with their local clinics and hospitals to make sure that their appointments are not um, cancelled. But uh, I would expect that we're going to continue, even during this um, third phase uh, of the pandemic, to continue to screen because we know that this is really having a health impact and that women should continue to be screened for their breast cancer. And by the same token, other screening is also continuing.
1: And... What happens or what might things look like if these screenings don't continue?
7: Well, we have a tremendous backlog, as I mentioned, over 400,000 in the screening program itself. And this is very difficult to catch up on. So what we're seeing already with some women who have delayed their screening appointments by a year in many cases Um, is that the women who are now presenting are having uh, larger tumors. Um, And we see this, um, they're more likely to have spread to their lymph nodes um, or to other parts of the body. And so this actually puts a real stress on our healthcare system where they need more intensive therapy um, than if they had been diagnosed at an earlier stage. And unfortunately, we're seeing a lot of these delays that um, are really overwhelming our, our system and we're, we're having to deal with much more urgent cases. Um, for example, last week I saw a woman with a seven centimeter tumor, which had been, uh, you know, not seen for over a year. So I really want to reassure people that they should get, um, attention for anything that is symptomatic. And if they don't have any problems, they should really continue with their screening appointments, um, regardless of what's going on with, uh, with the pandemic.
1: Dr. Jean Seeley, President of the Canadian Society of Breast Imaging, thank you very much for the the update.
7: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Bob Comsick sitting in for Libby Nimer. You are listening to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-744-740 if you would care to be part of our conversation. When we come back after the break, we will head to one of Toronto's main hospitals on Hospital Row on University Avenue and take a look at how one hospital in particular is going to be responding to the elective surgery delays that hospitals across this province will have to
0: deal with. You're listening to Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host, Bob Comsic. Welcome back. As we've pointed out, Ontario hospitals
1: say for the North starting to ramp down on elective non emergency surgeries in an effort to ease the pressure on intensive care units. And today, the province reporting 1,646 in hospital due to COVID, uh, 619 in ICUs, 408 are on ventilators. And on the line now from Sinai Health, physician in chief. Dr. Chaim Bell. Uh, Doctor, welcome. Uh, Thank you. And before we take a look at just how Mount Sinai is approaching this directive, at what point did you say to yourself, maybe one day, oh boy, I can see where this is going?
5: Um, Truthfully, we've seen this coming for a long time. Uh, The the, uh, COVID science table has done an outstanding job of uh, advising and of, uh, of really um, projecting uh, how the, how the uh, pandemic has been panning out. Uh, this was projected some time ago. Um, many times we were able to avert things uh, by our various measures, and, and that's been brought forward, but we saw this uh, some time ago Coming, it's a little bit different when it's when it's right near you in in sense of time, but the projections have really been there for some
1: time. Okay, doctor, and if I could just uh, ask you to please, if if we can just maybe, if 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 you're holding the the phone there, just to keep her steady so that uh, yeah. we can uh, we great. Can, I'll try it this way. Oh, ab- absolutely, the the best approach. Thank thank great, you so thank much. You. So, how is Mount Sinai? Uh, uh, approaching this directive and uh, where do you find yourselves as far as uh, the situation uh, at uh, Mount Sinai with the intensive care? How many do you have in intensive care, if you know that number or have it handy? Um,
5: right Right now, um, well, just, just to put it in perspective and just to stop, just to, this is not just a, a surgical story. This is not just a uh, an intensive care story. This is an entire hospital system and health system story. And, there's a real interplay and an interconnectedness to the, uh, for the intensive care unit for our general medical wards and for surgical wards. So th- this is not just isolated to one or the other. So that, for example, normally we have 21 beds. Um, no, uh, if you asked me a year and a half ago, we had 16 beds. Um, that went up to 21 beds, uh, a few months ago and um, now we've uh we're expanding into uh, a different part of the space to uh get a, get even more beds so as of now of our usual 21 beds we're at 22 beds um, in the ICU uh and we're well over our usual allotment of 84 beds for general medicine medical care but overall our ICU is is essentially beyond capacity and we're going to to new types of space um, for our general medical beds, we often at various times of year go over census as it's called but um what has happened is that we're expanding into a lot of the surgical space so the the challenge is is not just isolated to the i c u it's and it's not just isolated to general medicine it's 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 expanding everywhere, and uh we're all um collaborative and collegial, and we recognize the interconnectedness of everything. You can't. It's not just an isolated ICU story. It's not just an isolated ward story. This is a story that encompasses all sorts of people, um, all sort, parts of the hospital, all parts of the healthcare system.
1: Dr. Bell, obviously, as you point out uh, and have painted the picture, it's a complex medical Set of dominoes that, soon as you move one piece, uh, who knows how many might fall? I guess you just wince that not too many are affected, but you can't help because of the, as you say, the interconnection uh, in the landscape of a hospital and hospitals. It's uh, it's not just ICUs, although that does get a lot of headline attention.
5: Right and and it's the the ICU you have to under, you know people always think that the ICU is just the the bed and the vent the physical space the bed and the ventilator but an ICU recall is not just the physicians it's the highly specialized physicians highly specialized nurses highly specialized respiratory therapists the physiotherapists the occupational therapists the pharmacists this is an entire team of highly specialized individuals so expanding something like that is Is, is very difficult because there's, there's certain optimal ratios for, for, um, for clinician to, uh, patient and particularly the sicker they are, the, the, the more closer to a one to one ratio you want for nursing, for example. Uh, but sometimes we're, we're, we're under, you know, traditionally we have, um, we we don't have enough nurses in the province. At the best of times, uh, it becomes a lot more acute uh,
1: in crisis during crises like this. So, how do we get out of the crisis that that we're in right now? Easy one to ask, but boy, is it ever a long-winded response. So yeah. do do your best. I
5: will try. Um, the, the recognition is it, it's it's going to get worse before it gets better. Uh, the, in a sense, the die has been cast already. So. What we, what the reason I'm saying this is we wreck the, the events of a couple of weeks ago is, have, have informed or have caused what we're seeing right now in the infections, for example. So any efforts that we then bring in from the future or from now or the future will only have it, will only see its effect in a few weeks. So it's not a, it's not a, Everybody's always thinking of the the, the classic applying the brakes just before the end, right? Just before you might you might go over the edge. You can time it. You can see it. It's that psychology of that distance. When we're dealing with this type of growth and in infections and exponential growth, that's different than what you would see in other things. The mind is it, it often plays tricks on you. So what we're 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 seeing things that happened a couple of weeks ago. Anything that's been done just recently is not going to have an effect for a while. The closest thing that we can do are a lot of the, 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 some of the public health measures that, that have been instituted. There, there are other ones that can be instituted. Um, those are the, those public health measures and recommendations. Vaccination might affect the length of time of, of the, of the, the, if you will, the, the top of the hill, how large the top of the hill is, how, how large that crest is, how long it'll go on for, but it won't necessarily affect the peak right now because um, right it won't change where we're heading right now. The vaccination, as you know, just with everything with time, vaccinations take at least two weeks to reach where their maximal um, amount just for that single dose. So we won't really see effects of those, of those um, efforts for a while, and th- and that's part of the sobering aspect is that what we will see- what we see today will be worse tomorrow and worse the next day.
1: Doctor Haim Bell, physician in chief at Sinai Health. Uh, good luck to you and your your colleagues at Mount Sinai. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me on the show. Bob Comstock, sitting in for Libby's Neimer, who will be off
0: for much of this week. Jane Brown will be here to join you tomorrow.